Would you like to quote yourself or would you like me to quote you? Uh, I'll, I'll do the quote. This is attributed to the elder Baldy, Jeff McClure. Bull market makes geniuses out of all of us, but a bear market shows us for the fools we really are. Yeah, well, you, I can't quote it if you said it. I mean, I can put quotes around it for you, but I can quote you on that, but I didn't. Quoting myself. You're quoting yourself. Okay, that works. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Uh, together, we are bald. No, together, we are the Personal Wealth Coach and, and bald. I'm glad you got that straight. Yes, we have to establish, this is full disclosure, you guys need to have uh, total knowledge of the fact that there are two bald men with beards talking to you at the moment. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to the dated yourself this tape will destruct your podcast tape is about to self-destruct that's why you can't find the tape in it anymore (laughs) it already has self-destructed because it's too old right uh being listened to on a twa airplane on a company from a twa doesn't exist anymore either and uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. That Fair. was good. Perfect. Yeah. Well done. Now, but we didn't say the other thing. We, we normally say first that we don't give investment advice on this radio program, even though we are principals and a registered investment advisor. We're giving educational information because investment advice is given to individuals based on their personal circumstances, goals, risk tolerance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we can't do that on the radio. Because we don't know your personal goals and risk tolerances. Maybe we do individually with some of you, but not with all of you. A big piece of this is the fact that we are fiduciaries. If you talk to somebody who is a um, financial advisor, in most cases, they're functioning as a salesperson. And in a salesperson situation, there is an adversarial relationship, and the person can do a lot of things that a fiduciary investment advisor can't do, thank God. Uh, we are obligated to operate solely in the best interests of our clients. That's the big one, solely in the best interest of our client to the best of our ability. And to avoid making any misleading statements. And that's you, you think about that. Two hours of... Avoiding making misleading statements while talking to a large audience. That's why we say this is another exciting episode where we may do something horrible by accident. Uh, All right. So you want to talk about the market? What happened this week? Well, the stock market got really excited this week and rose a whopping 4.64%, meaning the S&P 500 to 3886.43. That's a new record, by the way. It hit a record on Thursday, another record on Friday. It was an interesting week, though. Normally, in the past several months, actually, whether the stock market has gone up or down, it has zigzagged a lot during the week, jumping up and down day to day. 
this last week, it just very slowly rose with each succeeding day, higher and higher until it hit a record on Thursday and just kept rising into Friday. Very smooth, uh, unexciting, uh, no big news rise in the market. Obviously, money is going into the market, and the Wall Street Journal sends folks around and asks or calls them or however they do. Uh, they, they talk to the traders in the market. And the people who are executing the orders on on the actually on the floor of the stock exchange, and say, what are people saying to you as the reason for this inflow of money? And basically, there's a growing optimism, and the growing optimism is around two things or three things. One, the number of new COVID nineteen cases in the United States peaked back about January sixth. Uh, and it's been slowly working its way downward since then. It's still higher than it was even in the peaks in July and in April, but it's it's gradually working its way down. And at the same time, the hospitalizations are gradually working their way down. Unfortunately, the death rate is still, the death, number of deaths daily is still rising. But it's pretty clear that we've passed the, or well, it's not clear, but it looks like we've passed the thir- peak of the third wave. And as more vaccines go out, we'll probably see a gradual decrease. When you put that all together and you recognize that the pandemic relief bill is probably coming, matter of fact, one of the few rises that you can see clearly in the market was when the, uh, the Democrats voted in the Senate and the vice president came in and broke the tie. The Democrats and Republicans voted and tied on whether to have a relief bill and the Vice President broke the tie. The market said that's good because more market, more money going to consumers, more money going to various places in the United States means more people buying things when this is over, which means that the companies will have higher profits. And of course, the big, the big, the 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 pandemic is the 800-pound gorilla, but the elephant in the room is the phenomenal quantities of cash that are sitting there in the consumers' hands, ready to spend when this is over with. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I want to jump in here because I want to make sure this is understood. When we say the market likes it, like when we're talking about um, a stimulus package, and they say this is good, this is going to be great for the market, there is a clear divide over long-term good decision-making in government and long-term good decision-making in business. Uh, there are lots of points in history where you can see businesses continuing to do quite well while the government flounders in debt and so on. So it's not a statement that says that the, that the marketplace uh, likes borrow spend or is any kind of a political statement about the Senate making a tie vote. Or If you look at the impact on the economy from the stimulus, the, the government's going to have to pay for it. They're probably going to pay for it in taxes. But this administration has already said that they intend to raise the corporate tax rate back up. So from a corporate standpoint, this still looks good. Taxes are going to rise. That's almost a given. It's not a given. It could get stopped. But but it's a stated focus for this administration. So from a marketplace standpoint, when, when we're looking at the market, when big investors are looking at the market, and a lot of little investors, they're saying, what's going to happen when all this cash hits? Well, people are going to use it to buy the market, which is why we see the market going up when stimulus checks are hitting. There's also people that are going to buy things. We had right. uh, 
some phenomenal growth in the sales of automobiles. And a lot of that has to do with the stimulus checks we are getting. And the fact that people are feeling more secure, the consumer confidence index went up. People are feeling more secure about the future. There's this sense, and I think that's the thing that's driving it, there's this sense that the combination of increased precautions and vaccine means that sometime about five or six months from now, this thing will be in essence over, or at least we'll be able to see the end of it, and people will go out and start spending again, and that will raise earnings. Matter of fact, Goldman Sachs expects record earnings from S&P 500 companies this year. Yep. Um, and we, we've seen a lot of that already. Uh, so for the third quarter, we saw a lot of record earnings come in. Apple, Apple knocked the ball out of the park. Microsoft knocked the ball out of the park. I don't know what they're doing in a park. These are nerds that should, like us, that should not be in a ballpark to begin with, but they are hitting home runs here. There's a place in Silicon Valley called Menlo Park. That's what they're in. Ah, okay. I gotcha. Gotcha. They're, they have a ball there that they knock around and they knock it outside of city limits and then they knock it out of the park. Uh, we were talking before we started the episode about this. Is the market overpriced or underpriced? And there's different ways of looking at it. And the traditional ways of looking at the market valuation are at odds with each other right now. Usually they are running parallel if there's, there's two ways of looking at it. You look at the price-to-earnings ratio. And if the forward-looking price-to-earnings ratio uh, is above about 20, you would say the market's overpriced. But then you have this Fed model that says that if the dividend yield is paying more than the 10-year treasury note, then the market is underpriced. Well, the dividend yield on the market is paying a lot more than the 10-year treasury note. But the price-to-earnings ratio is a lot higher than 20. So what does that mean? And this sounds like I completely changed the subject from what we were talking about a moment ago. It is absolutely not a change of subject. It's a lot, a lot of cash in the market. When you have a lot of cash out there, and this was done intentionally by the Federal Reserve to dump a bunch of money in there. It was also done intentionally on smaller levels at the corporate level and the personal level to bring cash back into their household uh, to pay off the debt to not, you didn't go on vacation this year, so you've got that vacation fund that's still sitting there. What do you do with it? Well, a lot of that money goes into buying other things, which causes profits to go up, or buying the market. There are a lot of people that have jumped into the market for the first time. And, you know, there's, there's the easiest and most name-grabbing moment uh, of the last two weeks is GameStop. You know, what's going on with GameStop? They, there was a big hedge fund that had sold it short. They have to buy the shares back. They think it's going to go down, so they're going to buy it at the lower price. And then a bunch of folks on Reddit in their Wall Street Bets uh, thread that talked up the stock, not because the stock was any good, but because the, the hedge fund had shorted it and they have to buy it back. Well, we talked last week that this is, this is a very textbook case of something called pump and dump. It, it's not the first time it happened. It ha it's happened in the early 1900s all the way up till now. As soon as we had newspapers, it started happening. And you can say, well, these Redditors weren't trying to pump and dump. They were just trying to make some money. Roaring Kitty is the, the main guy 
He's the guy that's been attributed with all of the fame and the success of uh, talking up GameStop. Something to know about Roaring Kitty in all of this is that um, his name is Keith Gill, and he's a licensed broker. He works for Mass Mutual. Uh, he's in an area of Mass Mutual that doesn't give direct advice to clients, but he's still licensed as a broker. There's a big chunk of the broker test. It doesn't matter if you're at the Series 6, Series 7. There's a bunch of licenses that get attached to these. Series 24, they cover pump and dump at great length. The idea that you could tell everyone to buy a company because you own the company and you think it's a good company, is that's free speech. You're allowed to do that. You can say, I own this company. It's amazing. You should tell them that you own the company. Well, he's done that, right? This is no problem so far. Um, this, this goes directly to why we don't say you should buy or sell something directly on the air. We don't give a buy or sell statement on anything. Is because we are regulated. We have knowledge that other people don't have about the marketplace, about our own clientele, about the conversations around us. We also know that pump and dump has traditionally been a thing that people in the know, they know something, even if it's just their own portfolio, use to talk up a stock so that they make a lot of money at the expense of everybody that bought it after they did. So that is the textbook example of what happened here on Reddit. They said, hey, we bought this thing, so should you. The big reason why they may not already be indicted and, and possibly going to jail is that we don't know if they've sold yet. So this could just be the pump. It could be that they say, hey, with enough people believing in this, it doesn't actually, the GameStop actually doesn't have to be a profitable company. It doesn't have to do anything at all. We'll just make their stock price really valuable. This happens occasionally in history where people buy something that ha has no value because it's trendy to do it. It's popular to do it, which is what this is. It's popular on Reddit to buy GameStop. And why is it popular? Well, you can put, Put the thumb screws on the hedge funds. Well, that's not why you should be buying something. You should generally not spend your own money on something that you intend to make a profit on when the only real reason is to hurt someone else. That usually ends badly. Um, we talked about this last last week, but this is an, an example of you know the the riot that hit the Capitol where their live streaming their own felonies. This is another example of that from a group that is as far away from that original group as you can get. It's someone who should not be ignorant about the rules, being ignorant about the rules. I hope he's ignorant about the rules. I hope he isn't just talking it up on Reddit knowing it's illegal to do this. But he should know. He's talking it up. He's publicly listing his, I mean, he's got screenshots of his own portfolio uh, up in the 30 plus million dollar range when he started with a much, much smaller amount of money. That is right out of the textbook on what you're not supposed to do when you're talking about how good a company is or how bad a company is, but you should buy it anyway. 
That's like the worst case scenario for pump and dump. Find a company that's absolutely worthless. Tell everyone to buy it for some reason other than the profitability or fundamental of that company and then sell it after everybody else has bought it. Show everybody how much money you made so that more people get on board and buy it and then sell it. I hope he was ignorant the whole time. I hope he was really caught up in drinking his own Kool-Aid. I think he was because he's in, you know, he's giving interviews and he's talking about, you know, this movement that he started. Okay, well, what that says is that there is a lot of cash in the market. A lot of people that have never been in the market before that are putting money in places that are relatively dangerous and they're making money at it. Would you like to quote yourself or would you like me to quote you? What about what brokers are? No, uh, about, uh, I'll, I'll do the quote. This is attributed to the elder Baldy, Jeff McClure. Bull market makes geniuses out of all of us, but a bear market shows us for the fools we really are. Yeah, well, you, I can't quote it if you said it. I mean, I can put quotes around it for you, but I can quote you on that, but I didn't. Quoting myself. You're quoting yourself. Okay. That works. And the other thing, there's another, there's another little more legitimate uh, element out there running a, a something called ARC. Have you heard about that? Yeah, yeah. Kathy Wood. The, it's an ETF and it's an actively managed ETF. And it, 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 this is the fascinating thing about it. The price to earnings ratio for this ETF, which is like a mutual fund, is 100. In other words, it would take 100 years of current earnings of the stocks held by this mutual fund for it to equal the price. That's like saying that if you, uh, you have a apartment, uh, you have a rental property that you want to buy, and they're clearing $1,000 a year profitability after fixing things up and doing all that has to be done on this house, and you say, okay, I'll pay $100,000 for that house above its fair market value. It doesn't make a lot of sense. In other words, if a house is worth 100000 because it's a rental house and it's not the best house in the world, but you'll pay 200000 for it because it's earning $1,000 a month. That doesn't make a lot of sense because you will it'll take you a really long time to get your money back on that. But that's, this is a crazy market. And the, the people who believe in high growth have taken it to extremes. And we're seeing that uh, with ARC. We're seeing that with... Uh, with uh, GameStop, AMC. Yes, if you happen to get it, it's a bit of gambling is what it boils down to. It's sort of a Ponzi scheme because the first people to get in make a lot of money, or at least on paper they make a lot of money. When they finally sell is when they make the money. Right. Which by when uh, Roaring Kitty is likely to get in trouble when he decides to sell. Because if he sells high, he will be still telling people to buy it and then sell the stock. Now, if he announces... Before he buys it, if he announces, I'm going to sell the stock uh, because I think it's too high now, and then sells the stock, that's he, okay. Yeah, he won't get in trouble for that. But I suspect he's just going to sell the stock. Yeah, and when he does, that's when the SEC steps in and says, sir, you're under arrest because that's illegal. Uh, Actually, and the SEC can't arrest people. Yeah, yeah, they can. The SEC has arresting uh, that it's the enforcement arm of the SEC. That's who arrested Stanford. Mm, I thought the I thought the the uh, federal agents had to come in from the Justice Department. They they have a SWAT team. Mm. The the SEC has a SWAT team. <laughs> How's that for weird? That's a little scary. There there are gun carrying members of the SEC, and then there's the non gun carrying members of the SEC. And 
there aren't that many gun carriers, but they are federal agents. Mm. Um, yeah. So we've got some other questions that are out there as well. I think talking well, I about what's that? And finish the markets either. Oh yeah, go ahead. There's a good side to the market. The um, we follow a mid cap value index, CRSP mid cap value index, because it comes out very quickly and it's quickly it's very easily available and it's a good balanced index. And that is the other end of the S and P 500. The S and P 500 doesn't have small stocks in it. The smallest stocks in it are what we call mid cap, and the largest stocks in it are currently. Uh, large cap growth, which is the opposite of mid cap value. And the mid cap value is up like 5.45% this year so far. In other words, basically so far this year, the value side and the smaller side of the S&P 500, the small value side, it is really small value, it's mid cap value, uh, our rise has risen faster this year than has the, the S&P 500 as a whole. And that's a healthy sign. It probably indicates that we're not in some kind of ridiculous uh, upward spiral in the stock market. And another thing out there that's positive, the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note rose 8.73% for the week to 1.171. Now, if you haven't followed this, it doesn't sound like a big deal. But since March, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note has been below 1%. It's now up to 1.171%, which is phenomenally good. As a matter of fact, it's about halfway back to where it was before the pandemic from its bottom. This indicates that the buyers in the bond market, who are certainly less speculative, believe that we are making a recovery and we're about halfway back. Uh, the Treasury yield curve, which forecasts uh, recessions fairly accurately, but probably the best single indicator of when things are going to get bad, uh, it continued to get more steep. The steeper the, ste the yield curve gets in the Treasury uh, yield curve, the more likely it is we are to have a rising economy going into the future. And the 30-year Treasury went to 1.977%. Now, that doesn't sound like much. It's just shy of 2%. But again, it was down around 1% and even tipping for a short period of time below 1% at the worst of this. So what we're seeing is the T-note yield the 10-year T-note yield up 33% in the last three months since early November, and it's only down about 27% from the level before the pandemic. So what we're seeing is the Treasury bond side of the market, which is the conservative, very conservative, very well thought out, very large scale, the largest security sales and buys that are in the world, is saying things are going to get better and there's not much to be afraid of. Uh, crude oil kind of went the same way. Uh, it's, it rose smooth and steadily all week with West Texas Intermediate, Intermediate Oil, which is a benchmark we use in the United States, up over 9% to $57 per barrel. You may remember there was a short period of time when West Texas, Interme West Texas Intermediate Oil went to a negative $35 a barrel. In other words, you had to pay somebody $35 a barrel to take it off your hands. Wait, that never happened this yeah. last year. Yes, a lot of people are still, when I mention that to people, they're, they're like, what? When? Yeah, it was a big deal when it was going on. But, but other big now, deals were happening too. It's not very far at this point. It's $57 a barrel. It's not very far from where it was before the pandemic uh, hit. And I think, there's every indication that the oil market, in essence, is saying people who are buying futures in the oil market are saying 
we are going to have a recovery this year and it's going to be a good one. So the danger in the stock market, the stock market in many, by, by some measures is overpriced and by some measures is underpriced. But the danger you see in the stock market is when the rest of the indicators, like the price of oil and the, and the interest rates on the treasury yield curve, say, hey, the bottom's about to fall out of the economy and then the market continues to rise like it did in 2000. We don't see that happening at all. That, that I agree. I agree. And this is the, the, kind of the last piece on the market there before we go to some questions that we have from listeners. Um, I mentioned earlier that there's two ways of looking at the price of the market. And then we talked about all the overvalued stuff and about GameStop and all this extra cash in the market. We didn't talk about the other aspect of the yield on the market. What does that even mean? What is the yield on the market? Is that like the triangular sign on the road? That's the yield sign. Uh, a yield is income generated without the sale of the business. So if you owned a business and it was paying you income, but you didn't have to sell the actually sell ownership in the business to get that income, that's a yield. You can get a yield for giving a loan to someone. Uh, the, the return they give you above the principal is a yield. So what did it yield to you? And that sign on the road has the same meaning, actually. It means to give up. So you yield the right-of-way when you have the yield sign. You have given up the right-of-way. You're giving up an income uh, to an owner or in, in the yield of an investment. So that's similar things. The yield on the stock market is talking about the dividend yield. Dividend is income paid out to the owners that doesn't sell the company. So it's a yield. All right, so the dividend yield on the stock market is much higher than the uh, 10-year treasury note yield. Well, that would mean from the Federal Reserve perspective that the stock market is undervalued. Well, we were just talking about it's overvalued. How can it be both? Well, it's exactly what you were talking about in another portion of the market report about the, the value companies doing well recently. But they've really been hit hard and their prices, and so they're still paying the same amount of money, but their stock prices are lower, which means as a percentage of the stock price, their yield is higher. So this is a part of the market that's truly undervalued. Right now, for example, if you could buy the S&P 500 stock index, and of course you can come pretty close to it by buying an index fund, a low-cost index fund. We don't recommend any buying or selling on this, but this is an example. If you were to buy it at this point and just hold on to it, the dividend yield, the, no the dollars you would get back each year on your investment without selling anything would be 1.6%. Uh, assuming which, that they continue to pay the dividends. Right. Well, the S&P 500 as a whole we're talking about. Right. They so there's a very, very, as long as there's one theory the, that works this way that's as long as the dividend yield is higher in the s p 500 than it is on the 10-year treasury the market is undervalued and since the treasury is only yielding 1.171 that says the market is undervalued right so what we can clearly say 
is that the stock market is both completely overvalued and completely undervalued. You actually have to take the market apart to its pieces to find the overvalued parts and the undervalued parts. They both exist, and they exist in, ver in a very strong ratio. It's really weird that you have such an evenly divided, really overpriced, and then really underpriced. Another aspect, another way of looking at it, and the theory says, as long as what's the earnings yield in the S&P 500? In other words, how much money do they make and then reinvest? That's profitability rather than just uh, what they pay out to the owners. And the earnings yield on the S&P 500 right now, hang on to this, is 10.97%. Did you get that? Yep. And that, that is a clear statement that the market is undervalued. At the same time that we can look at the price-to-earnings ratio, the price of the market is much, much higher than, than it should be based on those very same earnings. So it's I'm going to say this because it's fun to say. It's never really weird, but it's weird. The reality is that this is normal when you have a lot of cash with a whole chunk of the economy not available to spend it in. People are not spending on hotels and on restaurants the way they used to. The whole service industry is down drastically from where it used to be. That's, that's a big part of what we talk about ongoing day to day. So what do you do with all that money that you would have spent on a vacation, that you would have spent on traveling to work every day? And people are going, I didn't realize how much I was spending a couple of hundred bucks a month just on gas. Yep, it adds up. So what's happening with that money is it's not going to where it used to go. Read the petroleum companies have been hurt pretty drastically, but you can also see the dividend yield on petroleum companies being really, really high. That's not a statement that you should go out and buy a bunch of petroleum companies. You got to do the same research there as anywhere else. But when you look at the dividend yield on these companies, you can say they're undervalued. Are we done using fossil fuels? No. Are we on the road to at some point in the future being done using fossil fuels? Yeah, probably. It's going to be a while. So we can't just say, all right, those guys aren't useful anymore. Take them away. They're still out there. Uh, whether or not you want the volatility that's going to be there while the new technology slowly takes over is another question. Um, so all that is to say that the stock market is both overvalued and undervalued. Man, we should have just said that at the beginning and saved all this time, except that everybody would have gone, huh? Um, so, yes. Are you ready to jump into questions? Sure. Okay. Um, we've got one here. Uh, this is from Dave. I kind of know the response, but I heard this from economist Harry Dent today. He sounds like we should take a cash position as this bubble may collapse in a dramatic fashion. I have two books on my bookshelf by Harry Dent. Uh, one is called The Great Boom Ahead, and the other one is called The Roaring 2000s. Um, the first one, The Great Boom Ahead, when I, when I first read it, it's because you first read it. You read it at the same time I did. Um, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. It had charts in it. It had lots of numbers. The problem was that the demographics that he used in that book 
the great boom ahead was all about the baby boom generations and generation coming of age and and booming the economy. They did, but not in the way that he meant. He took a direct layout of time. He took, I think it was 43 years, I'll have to look back, and overlaid it on the demographic growth birth rate and laid it over the stock market going back from the early 1900s all the way up through like the 1990s. And uh, it had this amazing overlay. It was like, it was prophetic. It was amazing. The problem with it was that it was all made up. The numbers for demographics he used were not any official number. You can't find those numbers. I've got the book. I've got all of my research, if anybody's interested in looking at this. And then the Roaring 2000s, he wrote, saying that starting in the year 2001, we were going to have this boom like we'd never seen before, which was followed by the dot-com bust. And so he mispredicted that. And when I read the, the email here, Dave, Harry Dent is a columnist and an uh, author. He's not actually a columnist anymore. Nobody publishes him but him. He's right. a newsletter writer. He's a newsletter writer. Um, what that means is that his background is in coming up with ideas and writing about them. He doesn't have a, a great deal of background in finance, except for his writings about finance, which are quite often very wrong. They're opinion-based rather than real data-based, and in some case, cases based on verifiably false information. He did, he did, he did get into, economy, into the economy a little bit, into the stock market a little bit. He started a mutual fund, and he also started an ETF, both of which were shut down because of horrific, horrific performance. They kind of fell through the floor when they should have been done well. And the rest of the market was doing well. Harry Dent happened to publish a book in 1993, The Great Boom Ahead. He published it with a lot of false information in it, false sources in it, but that's beside the point. He was right. There was a boom in the 1990s in the stock market. And because he predicted that, he's retained his fame all this time. But he's, he's proved beyond a reasonable doubt that a stopped clock can be accurate twice a day. Uh, he happened to publish the right book at the right time and became very famous and relatively wealthy over that. And since then, he's everything he's done has been exactly backwards. He forecasts, for example, publicly that in 2009, he came out with a forecast that we were entering into the Great Depression. It would be a decade before the market recovered. And he made that forecast almost exactly at the bottom of the market. As a matter of fact, every, if you've followed him since the Great Boom Ahead, and I have, uh, he has been so consistently wrong that he's become a counterindicator to the market. In other words, when he says the market is going to collapse, it's probably a good indication that it's going to rise. And when he says the market's going to rise, you need to be afraid. So what, what we never, ever, and this is, this is pure education, it's so universal that we can say it educationally, timing the market doesn't work saying, I think we're at the top now, let's get out. You may make a profit doing that, but if your long-term goal is to continue growth, when do you get back in? And quite often what we see is people sell out high in the market and then buy back in later, maybe even after a drop, but after the market is higher than it was when they sold. 
And that's a real problem. Uh, Dalbar does a study that shows market timing just even when you're doing it in mutual funds, especially in mutual funds maybe, is a, is a real performance eater. It just eats it all up because if you go by your gut, which is what we're trying, what people try to do, say, hey, it's really, really high right now. It is. And, and if you look at all the headlines, there's a lot of headlines out there saying this is a bubble. We just went over talking about how it's both overpriced and underpriced. There's a lot of bubbles. The thing with bubbles is that if you predict the crash, you might have to have some patience because the bubbles pop at their own speed. I mean, those of you that remember the emu and ostrich egg thing in the last several decades, I guess it was about 20 years ago, Texas was a big place for this. People were buying emus and ostriches because the egg, you could the huge egg, you could eat them. It makes this massive omelet, and chefs were starting to use ostrich eggs in restaurants in New York and in San Francisco. It's becoming very cool. You could make a big omelet with this egg. I mean, huge omelet. You had to split it into like four four helpings for different people. So the and and the cholesterol was low. This was back when we thought cholesterol in the food had something to do with cholesterol in the blood. Uh, so there, it was a big part of the diet fad. So people started buying ostriches, and it became a thing. People bought a lot of ostriches. This sounds almost like a joke, like I'm making this up. Please look it up. It's amazing. This is like the the uh, the the orchid boom in of Dutch history, only even crazier. So emus and ostriches became not, a, not orchid, not or, tulips. I'm sorry, I bulbed flower. Yes, uh, the tulip craze in the 1600s. Yeah, uh, and I have books on it. I don't know why I called it an orchid. It's because I'm not big with flowers, I guess. Um, okay, so the the uh, uh, the emus and ostriches they start getting bought up and bought up and bought up. Well. There's a limited supply of emus and ostriches in the United States. I don't know if you've noticed that they're not everywhere around. Um, so it caused the prices to go up quite a lot. Up to the point where to buy an, an ostrich egg was $10,000. Even if you have four helpings in your omelet, that's an expensive omelet. I don't know. What's the tip on a $2,500 omelet that tastes a bit like sulfur? Because that's the other thing about emu and ostrich eggs. They don't taste like chicken eggs. They have a sulfuric taste to them. So you have to cook them precisely correctly. It's not like just throw them in on the pan or boil them or all the things we do with chicken eggs. You have to cook them right for them to taste correctly. So eventually the bubble popped. But the bubble lasted for almost a decade. Well, I actually tracked a guy who who bought ostrich eggs and then raised ostriches and uh, kept them for several years because he was insistent that the meat was going to be on the open market soon. It would be very expensive and people would be buying it. It was low fat. He had all the reasons in the world for buying ostrich eggs and raising ostriches. The only problem was it never worked out. Yeah. He lost. He lost. The funny thing is the last time I talked to him, I stopped tracking him after several years. Last time I talked to him, he insisted he'd made a profit, but I'd kept the numbers and he'd actually lost a lot of money on it. So all that is to say that when you predict the popping of a bubble, which 
We did with emus and ostriches. You have to wait a while to figure out. I mean, for several years after we said this can't last, it was still going. And people were using it as evidence. Well, those McClure's, they said this couldn't last. And look, I'm making lots of money on it. Yeah, it takes a while to raise your ostrich. You have to let it hatch and then grow up. For it to have its own eggs, it takes several years. And once all those eggs hit the market at the same time, the only people that were buying those eggs were the people that were raising the ostriches to sell more eggs. So the only people that were buying the eggs had their own supply of eggs at this point, so that meant that nobody was buying. John, we haven't forgotten about you. We just got caught up talking about tall birds. Uh, John asks about uh, payment for order flows, and it's directly uh, brokerage-related. We've never given out our email addresses. Oh, yeah. Do you want to give them? Okay, you can send an email to either jake at tpwc.com or jeff at tpwc.com. And we will respond to it on the air. We'll be back on the other side with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. We are both bald and we are both here to answer questions about the economy, about finance, about um physics maybe astronomy not astrology we're really i don't know what the signs are and order flow and order flow yes so john your question is a question people are asking and it's quite humorous because this is like the background behind things i've been talking about this on and off even on the radio uh for about a year and a half since robin hood started really making it robin hood doesn't charge a trade commission and they disrupted the trading world pretty thoroughly by coming out and saying hey trade for free now notice that they don't actually say trade for free they say free commissions no commission trades it's not trading for free they're getting paid they're a for-profit industry i mean this nobody should be surprised about this this is if you're surprised about this then you shouldn't be trading in the market because you're trying to find profitable companies and Robinhood wants to be profitable. So none of this should be an implication that they are bad in some way. Profitability is, is, is good. I don't know why I have to say that these days, but the, as long as you're doing something ethical and you're providing a service that people wish to pay you for, you should make a profit. That makes sense to me. Okay, so Robinhood is saying, you can trade commission free. There's no there's no charge on your statement that says that you paid us anything for this trade. It was free. And how did that disrupt the industry? Well, E-Trade and TD Ameritrade and a lot of the big brokerage houses moved to a a no commission trade platform. But we were just talking about companies that had record profits, weren't we? Uh yeah. These companies are all included in that. So how are they making their money? Well, there's a series of ways that they make money. You know, one, they make money on what they pay you and what they make, the difference between the two, on money markets. That's weird, isn't it? I mean, if you've got some money in cash and you're waiting to buy stuff, uh, they make money on margin interest. So when they loan you money to buy stocks, they can make money on that. 
Uh, they also make money on something called payment for order flows. What is that? Well, Robinhood, especially when it started, was not a big firm. Uh, when you buy a stock from a company or, or of a company and you say, I'm going to call my broker and buy a stock, those are held by someone else when you buy them. Somebody sells them to you. I know that seems pretty basic. Well, where are they? Well, how do you find it? Well, there's a marketplace for that. And people actually make the marketplace. And it's very much like a physical marketplace. It's very electronic now. But imagine like a bazaar with a bunch of tents. And if you want to buy Ford stock, you go to that big tent over there. And if you want to buy GM stock, you go to that big, big tent over there. Because those are places that actually will buy Ford or General Motors when nobody else is buying it and sell it when nobody else is selling it because they're trying to make an orderly market so that they don't have these massive movements up and down. If, if there wasn't someone that just bought Ford or just bought General Motors when people were selling or just sold it, then what would happen if you said, I want to sell $30,000 of my Ford stock so that I can buy a bass boat? And you put it on the market but at that particular moment, nobody was buying Ford stock. Well, the price would drop. Well, this isn't Ford's fault. Ford's a good company. They're making good cars, assuming that you believe that. Okay, Ford's doing well. So why did the stock drop? Why did the entire share value of that company drop? Because somebody tried to make a $33,000 sell. Well, because nobody was there to, to buy it, except somebody that was saying, I'll buy it at half the price. Well, that means the entire value of Ford Motor Company dropped by 50% because somebody wanted to buy a bass boat. Okay, enter the market makers. They collect the stock. If people are trying to sell it and there's not, so that they buy it at slightly below what everybody else is buying it at at any given time. So that it is, it's there. They're not buying it if, if a lot of people are snatching it up and they're selling it slightly above what everybody else is selling at, at any given time. Why? Well, nobody's actually buying it from them if it's above what everybody else is selling, except if no one else is selling, they start selling at that price. It actually causes the price to go up. Okay. This is fascinating stuff, I'm sure. They make a profit doing that, just like Walmart does in buying up your knickknacks and food and whatever, they buy it from someone else and they sell it to you for a profit. When I say they buy the stock at slightly below what everybody else is buying it for and they sell it at slightly above, that's how they make their money. They're not in it to try to, to uh, make a huge amount of money overnight at all. They're trying to keep the flow of trades even. That's called order flow. Market makers pay money out of their pocket to brokers and broker dealers to smooth the flow of orders, to keep a smooth, normal business structure so we don't have massive movements up and down where people accidentally sell way too low or accidentally buy way too high. So the market makers out there pay money to these broker dealers to say, hey, come through us as your, as your first order of business to sell through us and we'll pay you some money. We're going to make some money too. And they typically make some money on that. And most of that takes place on the options market. That's where the most money in order flow trades take place. 
the SEC's looked at this. They say this is pretty stabilizing for the marketplace. There's uh, we're going to have to talk about this a little bit more next hour because we're running out of time this hour. Um, let me talk about the goods and the bads of it next hour. So now that we've established what it what what it is, we'll talk about what the practice actually is today. Um, in the meantime, if you want to talk to us off the air, we'll be back next hour. But if you want to talk to us off the air, there's a local number with voicemail on the weekends, real life people in the week. 254-947-1111. Or if you still have a landline, you can reach that same voicemail on the weekends, real live people during the week, uh, toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can read our newsletters, sign up for those newsletters. You can listen to recordings of the radio program going back lots of, lots of years. You can get a link to our podcast. Uh, you can email us through a contact form or directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for listening. And until next hour, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach.